Well, hello everybody, this is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine, and this is Rattlecast number 29. Hope you're having a great day. We have a great show for you, as always. We have Susan Brown here from Cal uh, Oakland, California. Um, she's been in three issues of Rattle really recently. Um, three of the last four, I think you could say, if I'm, if I'm remembering right. Uh, but first, I want to start out, as we always do, as people trickle in and we make sure that uh, all the technology is working. Let's start out with a warm-up poem. Now, I did the random button again, and I swear this keeps happening, but I hit the random button and a slam poet comes up. And um, here is another slam poet. Um, this is Taylor Molly. Now, Taylor, um, everybody probably knows who Taylor Molly is, but he's the author of four collections of poetry um, and a book of essays. And he was a 2017 Rattle Chapbook Prize winner for The Wedding Stone, which is a great, really, I mean, if you want to ball your eyes out reading a little book of poems, get a copy of The Wedding Stone. He lives in Brooklyn where he curates the Page, verse, uh, page Meet Stage reading series at the Bowery Poetry Club. And his website is Taylor Molly. That's Taylor, M-A-L-I dot com. And uh, this is a poem from uh, an older issue, Rattle number 42. And this is um, Magnifies an Object Ten Times, which came up with a random button. It was the first one with audio that came up randomly. Um, and just a fun poem. Uh, we enjoyed it, so I hope you do too. Here it goes. Uh, this is Taylor Molly. Magnifies an Object Ten Times is what it clearly said on the handle of the magnifying glass my father received on his fifth birthday. He took it as a warning. The birthday gift would only work its magic ten times and no more, becoming, after that, just a small round window with no miracle, toy giant's monocle, a circle of simple glass. And so he went about his days with curious thrift weighing how much he needed to see any part of the world close up, observing as best he could with his own eyes first, thinking, do I need to see that dead bug big, that dandelion, that blade of grass, that wriggling moth in the spider's web? I can imagine most of nature's gifts and crimes. Best not to waste one of my ten precious times. He lost count of how many miracles he had left, and for weeks after, half expected the magic of the glass to simply stop. And I have asked him to tell me of the thrilling moment he realized, or was told, ten times in this context simply meant tenfold, and not ten instances, but he cannot remember. Likewise, the joy that must have come with such an infinite epiphany. But what he does recall, and says most he misses still, is the way the magic made him see the world the rest of the time. Not through the glass, but all the time he thought that magic would not last. And that was Magnifies an Object Ten Times by Taylor Molly. Looks like everything's going good, so let's jump into our featured poet for today. Uh, and our poet of the day is, uh, as I mentioned earlier already, the, Susan Brown's been in three of the last four issues of Rattle, which is, uh, that might be some kind of record. I'm not really sure. We, there was a time when we tried not to let poets be um, in Rattle 
uh, more than like once a year. And we kind of like forgot that. And then she was also, I guess what happened is she was in um, a regular issue. Then she was a finalist for the Rattle Poetry Prize. And then we have the current issue that just came out. It probably hasn't arrived yet if you're a subscriber. Um, our spring issue is a tribute to students of Kim Adonizio. And Susan Brown is a longtime student of Kim um, Adonizio. Uh, one of Kim's sort of student success stories, I guess you could say. Um, so Susan Brown is, uh, her poetry has appeared in Plowshares, The Sun, Subtropics, uh, The Southern Review, Rattle, a whole bunch of other places. She's the author of three books of poetry now. Her first two were Buddha's Dogs and Zephyr. Zephyr. Uh, and then her most recent is Just Living, which is the book that we have uh, right here. Um, There you go. Just Living by Susan Brown right here uh, with a beautiful, beautifully simple cover. It's a really interesting looking book as, as it's arranged. Um, um, and she's also received a fellowship from uh, a fellowship from the Provincetown Fine Arts Work Center. And her work's been nominated for three Pushcart Awards. She's also collaborated to create a word music CD. And uh, she's joining us here from Oakland, California. And here she is, Susan Brown. Uh, hi, Susan. How are you doing? Good. Good. Yeah, Good yeah. Thanks you, so much for joining us. So um, do you want to just start us out, like jump right into a poem? Sure. Sure. Um, I thought I'd start with the, the first poem in the book, uh, Just Living. And it's called Augury. I can't get enough of the clouds. And what they do, living side by side, I can hardly believe we still have weather. Today this headline, places to visit before they disappear. Some billionaire will build a wall around one of those doomed venues and sink a dozen underground bunkers adorned with gold and marble fixtures. At the gym, I walked by a TV as big as the house I grew up in, and Arnold Schwarzenegger shot a grenade launcher in my face saying, I've been waiting for you. And he's the good guy. Instead of watching TV, I watch weather patterns. The past three years, the cherry tree blossomed earlier and earlier. Today, I sat down on the carpet of scattered petals and tried to cast a magic spell. A, <clears throat> a magic spell, a rising up of a great change of heart arriving westerly on the global wind. The first kamikazes painted cherry blossoms on the sides of their bombers. I sigh a lot now as if I can't get enough breath. I read the sky, hoping not to see the flash. Today, I found hummingbird feathers, but not the hummingbird. Okay, and that was the first poem in Susan Brown's book, Augury, from Just Living. Uh, Susan, I was... Um looking up you know a little bit about you before we started and i didn't find a whole lot of like background detail so so how did you like i like usually i look for interviews and things like that but i didn't come across one where you talked about how you got into poetry and became a poet um what was your journey into poetry like um actually i did write an essay for superstition review about that yeah um how i got into poetry was my next door neighbor and um, she, I was about 10. It was in Long Beach, California. And she was an artist. And uh, 
she, I think she just saw something in me that might be interested, and so she gave me two books of poetry. And one was a very uh, beautiful book of uh, more deep poetry uh, by Poetry Northwest. It was published by Poetry Northwest, and um, it had lithographs and poems in it, and it was it was so beautiful, but it was way over my head. And then she gave me, but I was fascinated by it, because it had lithographs in it to these poems. And then she gave me a book called Archie and Mehitable by a journalist named Don Marquis. And Archie's a cockroach, and Mehitable is a cat on her ninth life, and Archie is a free verse poet, and he's he lives in this journalist's room, and when the journalist goes away, Archie gets on the typewriter and he throws himself headfirst onto the keys, and he writes his poetry, and and Mehitable the cat is there to tell him about her many many lives, and this cockroach Archie is a philosopher. And I don't know, I was 10 or 11, and I just, I thought this was the most amazing thing I had ever read. And that's how, that's how I got yeah, into it's, poetry. It's really interesting to hear those stories, because everybody sort of has a story like that in some way. And it's almost as if, like, um, poetry, like, the way poetry operates is almost like Freemasonry or something, where you, like, know somebody who's, like, for me, um, you know, as a poet who came to our school and sort of, you know, one of those visiting for just the week, and she went to every language arts class in our, like, sixth grade or whatever. And that was the first time I ever heard of poetry. Um, and it's, it's, it's just funny how that always seems to work that way. There's always some kind of, like, reason you got into it. There's no, um, I don't know, there's always a story. Um, and and yeah. the other thing is yeah. um, you're in the spring issue, which is just about to be out. I haven't seen a copy yet. I can't show it on screen. Uh, but people on the East Coast have already gotten copies, I think, or at least some of them have. Um, and it's a tribute to cool. Kim Adonizio and her students. So do you want to explain um, what, how, you know, you're in Oakland like Kim is, and, but how did you find Kim's workshops and, and what did they do for you? Well, I found um, Kim through Dorian, uh, Dorian Locks. And how I found Dorian, I think, was just, um, you know, I was reading a lot of poetry books and debut poetry books because I wanted to get, you know, I wanted to one day, one day in my life, have have my own poetry book. And Dorian had won the Phil Levine Prize for her first book, Awake. And I read that, and I went, wow. And I was teaching at Diablo Valley College, um, where I taught for many, many, still am teaching. But <clears throat> and I was head of the creative writing department there, so I invited Dorian to read at um at Diablo Valley College and, and do a workshop I think I think she did that and then I started taking her um her workshop in Petaluma she lived in Petaluma uh through Kim uh then they did the Poets Companion they wrote the Poets Companion together and they asked me Dorian asked me for this poem called um When My Mother Meets God and that's in that's in their Poets Companion and then Kim uh emailed me because I needed to, you know, work with getting that poem in there with her. And then I started taking, then Dorian moved away. And so I was taking Kim's workshop. And then Kim and I uh, started playing tennis because we both play tennis. And I don't know if you know this, but Kim's mother, Pauline Betts, 
uh, won Wimbledon like three oh, times wow. or something. I, and yeah, I did not know. I, I'm a, yeah. I play tennis. That's yeah. the main uh, sport that I do nowadays that I'm you know older and don't play baseball as much. But I played tennis this morning. Uh, so, but I had, but I had oh, no well, idea that Kim, uh, Kim's mother won Wimbledon. Wow, I did not know that. And so she plays too. Yeah. And, and yeah, yeah. So Kim and I played for years, and um, yeah. So we just got to know each other, and then uh, like that. But also, then I just started taking her workshop. And really, honestly, I was always in and out of some workshop of Kim's, either online or on land, for like I said, almost twenty years. And we we trade poems, you know, we're friends, so we trade poems sometimes. But, you know, she's a really hardworking poet. That's her, Kim is one of the only poets, I think, uh, who really has, makes her entire living off of being a poet. And so I just, you know, I always wanted to take a, take her, you know, take her workshop rather than say, oh, I'm your friend, you know, look at all my poems. <laughs> You know, but anyway, it's been, it was, yeah, she's a fantastic and, teacher. And what, and what lessons do you think that you learned from Kim about poetry? Like, are there certain things that stand out that, that she taught you as, as he went through over the years? Well, you know, what the th I call her my queen of Duende because um, she's the one who taught me about uh, Lorca saying that, you know, that, that Duende, you got to have Duende in your poetry and uh, Duende is, you know, you're walking down the street and a, a arsenic, an arsenic lobster falls on your head. I mean, in other words, this is life, right? <laughs> and, um, and if you don't, and life is many things, but you, you kind of always have to have that arsenic lobster sort of lurking around. And she just, she taught me many things, but she definitely taught me to not, I have a tendency to be sentimental. And, uh, but sentimentality is not, you know, so terrible, of course, but you have to learn how to balance it. And she's just such a strict, uh, very strict, though, about language, and she, I, I tend to be more about feeling, like, you know, I gotta, you know, I gotta write about my feelings, and, you know, she, and she was saying, yeah, we don't want to hear so much about your feelings, we do, but, you know, we don't really hear, want to hear that much about you, I mean, she, she just taught me, you know, don't give me your diary, you know, I don't want to hear your diary, and she was very gentle, uh, she could be very tender, but mm -hmm. she was tough. Like, you know, that is not compelling language, and that is not this, and that this needs to go. And so I came to poetry in terms of publishing quite late. You know, my first book didn't get published by Fourway until I was 48 years old. And so, yeah, I, I, I wrote poetry since mm -hmm. all my life since I was a kid, but I didn't, I was working very hard as a teacher, so I didn't really uh, send out or do all that until I was in my mid-40s. So Dorian and uh, Kim, well, I met, Dor I met Dorian when I was probably like about 39, but Dorian and Kim really, really pushed me into that world. And, I mean, not pushed me, but they really gave me the 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 skill you know get serious about this you yeah, become yeah. an artist you know what what are you are you a hobbyist mm -hmm. or are you an artist and you know i wanted to be the artist i wanted to get my poetry out there and yeah so and i could go on and on about what they taught me but they taught me all the great yeah. things you know the rhythm of the line the music of the line the line breaks the the balancing of the dark and the light and, and all of that. Um, and, and you mentioned um, 
you know, starting, you know, not publishing until you were later, you know, until you were 48, but you were writing the whole time. Did your first book include a lot of poems that you'd written like many, many years before that? Or is it sort of more recent stuff? Like, what do you what do you do with the older poems that you wrote, like in your 20s? Um, you know, did they hold up? Well, uh, no, the ones in my 20s. <laughs> No, <laughs> the ones in my twenties definitely didn't hold up, but the ones mm-hmm. in my thirties did. And um, I, in that first book, I have probably have not a lot, but I probably have three or four or five that were written. Uh, one of my other great things before I um, met Dorian is I went to Squaw Valley, a community of writers, and I worked with Galway and Sharon and and Robert Haas and Lucille Clifton and Brenda Hillman and you know I couldn't have had better teachers and so in 1988 one of the poems in Buddhist Dogs is called um, I think it's called it's called the Chair and uh, that was like the beginning I I worked on that poem that was 1988 and I didn't get that poem into a book until uh, it, that book wasn't even published. I won the prize at Four Way in when I was 48, but my book didn't come out oh, till I was yeah. 50. So that, yeah, that's yeah. really cool. With that. Yeah. Um, well, do you want to read, yeah. read a couple more poems first? Let me say, if anybody has any questions for Susan Brown, just use the chat window on YouTube. I'm watching. Um, I see Kim Kim Tedra is a big fan of the Poets Companion, which a lot of people are. Uh, if you have any questions for um, Susan Brown, just let me know in the chat window, and I'll pass them along. But let's hear a couple more poems, Susan. Okay. Um, the next poem I had uh, here, I, like I said, I was, a, I was a teacher at Diablo Valley College and still am. I teach uh, one class or two classes a semester. Uh, this is a, so I have some poems in my book about teaching, not a lot, but, but some about being with students who have always inspired me. <clears throat> this is called Semicolon. Today is a riot of petals. Cherry blossom blizzard, 81 degrees in February. I teach the subtleties of the semicolon and try not to sadden for my student who's writing about her leukemia. She told me there's no match for her marrow. The meds make her fat and soon she'll be immune. She wants to learn more about punctuation and I wish I had more to offer than a period on top of a comma, something bone deep. NASA says an asteroid the size of two football fields could hit Earth. The odds are one in a quarter million. What's odder than that? Being alive. We must never be immune to each other. After class, we walk among crushed flowers, and I pause and see her eyes are the color of violence. Yeah, that's sort of the... the maybe the line that stands out the most um, in the whole book, we must never be immune to each other. Um, just a, a wonderful line. And, and so true. I think the, um, I don't know, it's, it's something I've never heard put that way, but, uh, but the way, especially there's a lot of politics in this book. Um, and, um, you know, there's a way that we sort of become immune and, and think of other people that we disagree with as deplorable and all that stuff. And, um, and so I really love that line. Um, anyway, I didn't mean to interrupt you. you. Let's do another another poem. Yeah, no, no, yeah. I, it's like you, you write and write and write, so you can get one line like that. <laughs> you write for you write for forty years, so you can get, you can get a line that is simple. Yeah, as it's that. amazing how yeah. like, the best lines the best <laughs> lines are usually really simple somehow, and it's like, and you always read them, and you're like, yes. how did no one ever say that that way before? Like that's sort of what great lines how they work. 
Yeah, I've been reading, uh, rereading um, James Schuyler. I don't know if you know his poetry. He was one of he was one of the with Frank O'Hara, one of the poets of the New York School, and uh, his his writing is so simple and it's but it's so beautiful. It's, okay, this one's called uh, Taking It for a Spin. What I loved about my Barbie doll was her car, a red convertible. She drove all over town. She didn't trust Ken's driving, but something. But sometimes invited him along. Sometimes she got out of the car and walked with Ken into the pasture behind the living room chair and laid herself on top of him. This occurred soon after the invention of Creedence Clearwater Revival. My Barbie wasn't born on the bayou, but she wasn't afraid of chasing down a hoodoo, and she was never going to get stuck in Lodi again. She broke up with Ken. She broke up with a lot of Kens. They were exactly the same, totally plastic, wanting her to spend more time at her Barbie glam vanity set than in her car. My, Bob, my Barbie wanted to go to England, to college in Cambridge. She would go everywhere. She would learn everything about what a woman can do. She couldn't imagine not being able to vote or own property or having as many rights as cattle. The kind of cow with a tag in her ear. Some people in America still think a woman should be tagged. My Barbie will, in due time, drive to Washington, D.C. and park in the Oval Office. She will take the Dems and the GOP out for a spin toward a new vision. My Barbie knows for sure, just like you do, the future belongs to her. Yeah, that's another great line, too. Um, you know, just the... Um, there's a lot of politics in this book, and there's a way that, that the future belongs to her, you know, as a plastic object. Uh, that's a really haunting way to put, you know, the fears about the environment and, and um, just all the plastic we're dumping into the world and things like that. Um, how did you... Um, approach the book that way um did you like like how would you how would you describe the book i think um you know there's no description of the book other than the blurbs on the jacket and stuff like that um, what do you think of just living as there's a really interesting way that I, I sort of feel like when looking at the title um that there's like a sort of implied just living is enough you know that sort of feels like what uh the book is doing to me but but how would you put what the book is about Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> you know, trying to put a lot of... Some people write in sequences, you know, sequences of poems, especially when they're going into their third or fourth book. I, I've noticed that. And, you know, I didn't do that in this book. Really, they, they are poems that came from the last nine years uh, of my life. But because that's it's been nine years since I published uh, my second book, but really, a lot of these poems ended up coming from the last two years uh, as I went through the manuscript many, many, many times. Uh, and organizing it was kind of, was you know, my, so much more politics mm -hmm. and the environment and all of that just, you know, it's just so huge. It's very hard to not write about it. And um, so, but so much of my poetry, my other books are especially Buddhist dogs is yeah it is about just living you know it's about trying to live in the 
in the uh, personal, in the political, in the planetary, you know, and I was hoping that this book had all that in it. I mean, I felt like it, it did when I finally got done with, with it after having worked on it for a long time and having a couple people, a couple really good poets look at it mm-hmm. for me and say what they say how they thought it should be structured yeah it takes a village i mean i had i for me trying to put a whole book together this book together or any of my books together has been difficult because i don't feel like i have any one you know one theme um except for yeah Mm -hmm. just living i mean this is what it's like um right now to live this and and also the beauty I, I want it to be more beautiful, you know, I want it to feel more, I want it to feel beautiful, like um, that it's not a bad thing what we're living, but but what we're living is not, I mean, I was, you know, a young woman in the 70s, it's like, my God, I, I don't want to say that my life was easy because it was not at that time, and so I don't want to romanticize it, but it's just so... I think it's much more difficult now yeah. to live. Hmm. I really well, do. And so to me, just living is, is it's mm-hmm. beautiful and it's yeah, very hard. Right. It, yeah. Does it feel, you know, I in the 70s we had um, you know, such a threat of nuclear war. And, um, you know, is, is it, I always wonder, because, you know, I, I, um, I'm only 40 or 39 or whatever. So I, never, I didn't live in the 70s. Uh, if, I wonder always yeah. if... Um, the feeling that we have right now that like this is a, a tough time to live in, um, is that really different than it was? Or is that just the distance that we have from the other problems that didn't end up ending the world, you know? Um, do you think it's actually harder living now? I mean, it's definitely more complicated. Like our time is so, um, you know, like micro divided or something that it's hard to, you know, it's hard to, there's just so much to do throughout the day because of technology. Um, but do you think, do you think it's harder now? And, and can you talk about why, why it's harder? Well, the problems that we had in the seventies, you know, have now just built into, cause we didn't do anything about them. Then. I mean, they've just become this bigger problem, um, uh, because we weren't paying attention and, um, you know, now, so, so I guess I, yeah, I think it's much more difficult now because we have it all in our face and little kids have it in their face. And, um, no, we didn't have school shootings like that. And we didn't, we didn't live yet. We had the threat of, uh, yeah. nuclear the nuclear power has always been there but but now there's more mm-hmm. of these domestic problems that well, are you had, like i always think you had and, like the but, kennedy assassination both brothers then martin luther king and you had like everybody was like getting whacked in the 70s and you know late 60s 70s uh even the even uh john yeah Lennon, you know uh that's that's true but like well maybe part of it too for me is that it everything does seem mm-hmm. so sped up it seems really like everything. Well, I don't. I'm I'm semi-retired, so I'm not in the kind of hurry that I was. I mean, the the hurry, the the multitasking, the the things that have to be done. Um, oh, oh, here's a good example. Like at my school for a while, it's not happening any anymore so much. But uh, you know, because I think my 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 fac the faculty that I was with. I mean, the, they just said we're, we're tired of this, but that needs to be done yesterday. 
that's that phrase just makes me sick. You know, that should have been done yesterday. Oh, really? You know, I mean, I mean that's, that's my, from, I'm a kid from the 60s, you know, oh yeah, peace, baby. You know, it's not going to be done yesterday, honey. I mean, I, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's something inside of me that, that just revolts against um, that kind of tyranny over a yeah, human being's yeah. time. And, and, we, and we have such little time on earth, you know, no matter how long we live. And um, so I, you know, I guess it's to me, it's a resentment almost uh, against, you know, that kind of way of living. But um, of, of, and technology has definitely driven us yeah, um, yeah. into, you know, we're just looking at our phones and everything, you know, we got to have mm-hmm. something going on. Um, I don't know where that's going to end. You know, I don't know. I don't want to get, you know, we're getting too much into that conversation. But, I, you know, I think that technology is a beautiful thing, but it's also, it's, I get really yeah, sick of yeah, it. That, yeah, just a sort of shout out to my, one of my favorite books of poetry is Eric Campbell's um, Arguments for Stillness, which talks about um, just the, the need for stillness that we have and how poetry is the stillness that, that's missing in our society. Uh, that's that's why it's one of my favorite books of poetry. Uh, my favorite, one of my favorite poems in that book is that um, uh, considering metal man as a template for world peace, and uh, and and at the end he says um, <laughs> how perfectly still he sits, how nobody dies because of this, and I just like think of that as how yeah. you know poetry is really providing something that that is fundamentally lacking in the fast paced, constant technology, no introspection. Uh, world that we live in now where everything is a sound bite and like a quick you know a hot take and a twitter tweet and um and poems are things that you have to read again and again and again and, and sort of settle down and, and have that sense of stillness with so um that's why i do poetry like that's why uh, you know i could have done anything with my life and i felt like uh, what was missing was poetry and uh and, and yes. so i'm just so grateful that people yes. do poetry and, and they were sort of weirdly living in the golden age where there's so much great poetry around um Anyway, once again, if anybody has any questions for uh, Susan Brown, just let me know in the chat window. But let's hear another another couple of poems, Susan. Yeah, I love what you said there. Yeah, I just, I, you know, poetry to me is, well, reading itself, close reading. I mean, that's what I taught for, you know, decades at, at Diablo Valley College. You know, we would read a poem three times, you know, so I would I would read it. The students would read it. We—I don't know. Now it seems kind of very difficult to do that, but that's still going on in colleges, I know, and and high schools. And yeah, poetry is a place to to think about and feel and just yeah to 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 re- yeah, be able in the to sense, reflect in the sense of um, still. you know the in writing too, like the process of writing poetry is the same kind of meditative stillness. Uh, you know, like the, today, I wrote a poem for a prompt because I had to, like, just a couple hours before the show, and I ended up in like such a good mood afterward, just because I sat and like took the time, because I had the deadline. I was like, I got to write something, and um, and and I think poetry really adds something to to life that we're missing. So, um, yeah, and and it's part of just yeah. living, just to tie it back to the book. It really is. Well, here's 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 just living. Yeah, here's just here's the title poem, and it's a prose poem. Um, just living. I didn't have time to masturbate this morning. It's right up there at the top of my to-do list, but I have way too many things to do. I'm retired and busier than ever. 
I started meditating every morning, so now I don't know which to do first, meditate or masturbate. Probably makes more sense to masturbate and then meditate because I would be more relaxed, but sometimes masturbating can take a while, depending, so I might have to skip meditation and then feel lousy that I didn't get everything done. I could alternate, I guess, masturbate on Mondays, meditate on Tuesdays, and so forth. Skip Wednesdays because my husband and I usually have sex on Wednesdays, the whole point of the daily masturbation program. My doctor prescribed uh, masturbation. Do it as much as possible, she said. The old use it or lose it. After I told my doc how much time it was taking out of my day, she recommended using a vibrator to speed things up. We went online to look at choices. She was surprised I didn't have a vibrator. And then I remembered the one my friend had given me from my birthday a long time ago. It was a sunbeam, I think. That's, that was the brand name. My friend had called it a traveler because it was so portable. You could put it in your purse or your coat pocket and use it anytime, anywhere. Well, almost anywhere, I wouldn't use it, say, in Costco, although I could easily just duck behind the gargantuan mountain of mega rolls of paper towels, or better yet, behind the floor-to-ceiling stacked boxes of Cuervo tequila. I could break open a bottle, take a few chugs, turn on the traveler, and underlay. I'm starting to get ideas, put on my headphones, and listen to my meditation while shopping at Costco and then cruise with my traveler for a quickie and a brief happy hour. Thinking further, masturbation really is a kind of meditation. Ergo, is meditation a kind of masturbation? I miss teaching my critical thinking class. I bet my students would have a rousing discussion on this topic. I went home from the docks and searched the closets for my little sunbeam. Then I got sidetracked with throwing stuff away. My husband asked me what I was looking for, and when I told him, he said, Oh... We aren't big fans of electronics in bed. I even have a problem with using an electric toothbrush. I don't mean for masturbation. I mean for my teeth. It rattles my brain or something. My husband thinks he should be enough, that he's better than a machine. But these are desperate times, and we discussed it, and he understands. After all, it's doctor's orders. When I finally found the traveler, I turned it on and it needed batteries. I wrote go to Costco on my to-do list. I might try out my new plan with the headphones. Cleaning took hours, so multitasking is a must to catch up. I wouldn't exactly say I'm retired. Just living takes a lot of work. And that was the title poem from Just Living. Um, I know I said read too, but uh, but that sort of brings up an interesting topic. Sex comes up a lot in this book. And I love that line uh, that talked about masturbation as meditation and, and vice versa. And um, there's a way that's really fascinating to me that always has that poetry, when you're writing, the act of writing becomes the um, Buddhist sort of sense of no self, no time. And, and there's sort of certain phases that you get that experience in life naturally, and we all gravitate toward them, which is, for me, sports, and then there's sex, and then there's poetry. And those are three places where you, you focus on something so intensely that you lose yourself, and it becomes sort of a, a way, a tool to meditate 
without realizing that you're meditating or without going to a Zen center or something, uh, or, or you know, downloading a, <laughs> an app or whatever people do for meditating now. Um, is there a way that, that poetry acts as meditation for you? Um, oh, yeah. You know, I mean, you, you sit in front of a piece of paper for hours and I, I do a lot of writing in my in my journal and uh, I don't so much anymore. I compose more actually now on the on the computer, but I still write in my journal um, just to just to get just everything out, you know, to see if something's there. And uh, but, yeah, when I start working on a poem it's like being in a trance, you know, I mean, it truly is, I, I can, if I'm, sometimes I can just stay there all day, I, I have to make myself get up and go for a walk, and I'm really big on walking, too, because I found out that um, walking, well, I've always ran, but now I walk, run, but it, it, and I go longer now, because it helps me work on poems, like I work on them in my head, and, and things that, that I can't figure out, I'll go for a walk, and I'll, and and then it'll come to me. You know, it's just walking is just. I know Mary Oliver. I remember her writing a lot about that. And when I was younger, I always wanted to run. You know, I wanted to run, and now I'm more interested in the long walk, like and just walking. I will walk like five miles, and and then tennis. In tennis, I do not. I'm not able to do anything about poetry because your tennis is yeah, it's like sex. Yeah, I'm mm -hmm. not writing a poem when I'm having sex. <laughs> But I like how you said that. Tennis, sports, sex, and poetry. Yeah, I would say those are really on the yeah, top yeah. of my list besides, yeah. besides eating. Yeah, for, yeah. for me, like uh, uh, it's yeah, baseball so. more than tennis, although tennis is very similar. But I played baseball for so long that when you know, the balls hit, like I would dive, my body is moving for the ball, and I'd throw it to, you know, slide in the hole and throw it to first without like even having a memory of what I just did. And like people are like, yeah, and I'm like, what yeah. just happened? I don't even know. Like I was gone. And um, and there's certain well, times you're gone, but those times you're gone are so important. Um, yes, I think that's what when you're gone. Yeah, how you know we want to live so much, but it's kind of interesting. I mean, it's like you're gone from the from the time world. You're you're in this field of time that that just that just disappears and that's just and you, and you get rid of yourself you know I mean I think that's the thing that's so amazing with because I'm writing all these things that are really about me but but in, in my view of the world and, and what's happening in the world through my vision but but I'm disappeared when I'm writing I'm disappeared I am not there I'm 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 creating the thing and that and that and when you're playing sports it's the same thing it's like you're just so a part of it and that i think everyone's got to have something like that and my husband's a cook oh, yeah. he's a chef and oh my god you know he just he will just lose himself in making now he's decided he wants to be a vegetarian and so we but he's still eating fish because i said i gotta have some protein but and i haven't eaten meat for years but he he's really going more the vegan route um wholly and except for fish and he's not eating eggs and all that but now he's just scouring all the cookbooks to find these vegan recipes and he'll take hours to make something just yeah. for the two of us and when, and when he has the time and that's his that's his thing and i just feel like every human being really needs to have that that's because it, it's a stillness it's a meditation yeah and that and yeah. that place we can have stillness is sort of our only 
moment of immortality, you know, because time stops. And so you live forever in those moments and, and we're going to die otherwise. So, um, you know, they're just so important. <laughs> and I think that we live in a world where we don't get those very often because everybody's flooding us with, um, you know, marketing and politics as sports and stuff like that. Um, let me uh, ask, Why? you sort of touched on something that Kim Tedrow asked in the comments. She says, I wonder if you noticed a change in your writing process from a typewriter to computer, or I guess handwritten to a computer. Uh, with software, we've lost that more deliberate revision process. Uh, what is your experience with that? Do you think it's, does it change anything fundamentally to be writing on a computer now as opposed to by hand? Um, you know, sometimes I feel that's why I say I go back to the journal, um, to journaling stuff, because uh, I think it was Tom Lux told me about like writing like 10 pages, like just just when you're when you feel like you're not writing anything, uh, you know, write that you like, you know, write 10 pages, just just sit down and write 10 pages in your journal. And if I do when I do that, usually I do come up with something that surprises me. And um, and then I can take it to the computer and start working on it there because now I'm used to that. But well, I started out with the typewriter. Oh my God! I, I you know, not even I had the regular old type. Well, I had an electric typewriter, but I mean, you actually had to put it in and put the the white stuff on it. And when I think to get the eraser the, to erase it. I did that for hours, you know, for with a like one poem. You know, oh, I know. I, I, I completely yeah. had forgotten about that. But yeah, you'd like type out the whole essay or yeah. whatever, and then you'd like mistype one word, and you'd be like, "No, <laughs> I was so close." <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I I had one of the greatest experiences of my life driving Galway Canal from Carmel in a workshop to uh, the airport in San Francisco for him to take the airport. And he, I had this little convertible, and he's, you know, he was this huge man, and he gets in, and then he's got his his manual typewriter, and he put it at his feet. And I, he was in, this was in 1990, yeah, 1990, I think, yeah, 91, and he was still using a manual typewriter. I was like, wow. <laughs> yeah. Um. I, you know, I so, want to get back to poems, but, but I want this to be as, as interactive as possible. And uh, David Cook uh, brings up something interesting. Uh, when you talk about walking, um, he says, how do your, your walks feed your poems? And then he says, do you have any poetry boxes along your routes? There's a cluster in Oakland Hills, including uh, curated by Maxine Hong Kingston. Have you heard of these poetry boxes? I don't know what he's talking about, um, but it's Oakland. Oh, well, there's, um, yeah, Maxine Hong Kingston. I don't know if she still lives uh, on Broad Broadway Terrace, but that, I know her house burned down years ago, and then she re rebuilt it. I don't know if she rebuilt it there, but I live right there. I live right there. And the, I don't know if he's talking about poetry boxes, but um, there's uh, library boxes, you know, where the, the little libraries that they build, um, and they put them out in front of their house, mm -hmm. and they have books in them. Yeah, I mean, we have those, but I don't think hmm. they're poetry boxes. Yeah, we'll I don't know those about those. Later. Yeah. Um, anyway, let's read two yeah. actual poems straight through, and I won't interrupt you with any questions. Oh, all right. Okay. Um, uh, this, is a, uh, this poem's uh, Reprieve, and this is for my sister Carrie. Reprieve. Firemen cut my sister from a car, pulled her through the shattered back window, one held her head so she wouldn't move, so the jaws of life wouldn't saw her in half. 
She held so still, listening to the keening of metal, then a river of quiet, and she was back to watch our mother being helicoptered to the hospital for no reprieve. My sister and I hike along the flume, and I can see the scar on her leg from the gash that glittered with shards of glass. It had taken the ER nurse hours to tweeze them out. As we walk, sometimes she takes my hand. Her wrists are delicate, but she is strong with gratitude, and I learn it from her palm against mine. I want to obey her law of optimism, wear it around my neck like a small cross on a, on a fine, almost invisible chain. And that's a poem. Uh, my sister and mother were in a, a car accident, uh, and my, my mother died, and uh, my sister survived. And uh, she just is uh, such a... She's, uh, she's 16 years younger than I am, um, and she just teaches me with her life and her attitude uh, to be thankful. And, and she's always optimistic. It's amazing. She just... Yeah, she went through so much, and that's for her. Oh, that's right. You're not going to say anything. Oh, I forgot. <laughs> okay. And this is, this is Love Letter. <clears throat> Mom, you've been gone so long, the Berlin Wall is less than dust. Two grandchildren, you've never met her in college. One of them plays Moon River on the piano like you used to, and some of your jazz favorites. There's been 10,000 appalling and amazing changes in the world. You'd like it, that women hit serves as fast as men. I'm on marriage number three, but it's lasted past the month-to-month -month lease, and I live in a house instead of that remodeled garage where you cried because of the dirt floor in the closet. I'm older than you ever were. Although I think of you almost daily, I can't hold a picture of you in my mind. It fades like a breath print on glass. Even my long anger about the way you died is like a memory of a memory. Your ghost has never visited, but I've had two dreams of you. In one, we walk along the beach, and you're dressed in white shorts and t-shirt, those sandals with the jeweled strap between the toes. You can't speak, but seem fine, like you're on vacation. In the other dream, you lie on the ground, sleeping. Large doves encircle you and won't let me in. You are far away now, or maybe so close I've been living for both of us. Out my window, the fog laced with salt and light lifts from the trees. I can see the ocean you loved from here, where I remain yours. And those two poems were uh, Love Letter and Reprieve from Susan Brown's new book, Just yeah. Living. Um, Susan. Uh, I, I miss these because they scrolled by so fast. But Jimmy Pappas is here, which is always nice to see. He's uh, he'll be the featured guest uh, next month. Amy Miller is also here, and she you know she's a well known yeah. you know, she's a really great poet. One of those great. I'm sure you know her from the Bay Area. Um, yes. She asks, uh, yeah. can you talk about how your approach to structure has changed over time? Have you moved to shorter sentences or different forms? And if so, how much was deliberate versus natural progression? 
an interesting question from Amy. Yeah, you know, I've, I've written in the same way for quite a long time. And actually in this book, I, 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 I have some very, a different form. And that's a form, in fact, I could read a, you know, you have to see it on the page really, but I decided to get rid of uh, punctuation and, uh, and do spaces instead of using punctuation and, I th and not use any capitalization except for uh, the I and then with um, sometimes and sometimes with names of countries or proper nouns and I I don't know um, it's just giving me more space I, I like yes it's not shorter lines but they're it's almost like I'm a little bit in fragments yeah they're like these little pieces that are kind of going across the page and I like what I can do without, I don't know, I'm, I'm just not liking all this punctuation. I know people have done the, you know, W.S. Merlin, I mean, people have been doing this for years, but um, Lucille Clifton, but I, um, I, I'm enjoying that. I'm really enjoying trying to find a way to do something a little different, yeah, um, because the, the strict, and, and yeah, but I would say my poetry has still remained, even though I've tried, in my second book, I tried to be a lot less, I, ha, I was very influenced for, for a while by Dean Young, very influenced, and I like his, love his poetry. Uh, but then, you know, so I think I was trying to copy him, you know, try, trying to be, you know, a, a mini woman Dean Young or something. I don't know, as many, many people were pro probably trying to do. And I've gone through many loves, you know, uh, many loves of, of people that I, that I emulate, but um, of poets. But yeah, I feel like I'm 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 edging toward a very different style slowly, and I want it to be very authentic. I want it to be very natural. And of course, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. You know, I'm not making any, you know, we're all copying each other, and we're all, um, you know, part of the same tradition of of experimentation. But I am finding that there's a few poems. There's actually there's more than a few poems in here that are in that. Form. Well, you have, uh, that's actually a, a really great segue, because you have two poems, uh, Donovan and To the Future, that are newer in that form you're talking about. Do you want to read yeah. those two now? Yeah, yeah, it'll be interesting if they sound any any different. I mean, if they sound any, because on the page they look different, but yeah, um, I'll, because I just wrote about my mom. Yeah, this, this has, you know, I'll read the one about To the Future. Yeah, I'll read that one first. Um, to the Future. Long ago, I couldn't wait to see you. In the form of very lustrous lipstick, my mother finally let me wear. Now the world is losing every last one of its teeth. You flail with us as we fail at being the noble paragons of animals. You needed more attention than I thought. Now I can't stop thinking of you when the hot wind blows, when the crows circle calling a searing warning above hills like kindling. Last night the earth shook, as if trying to free itself from crime scene tape. The painting of the bowl of cherries fell, here in America. We nailed it back up, whistling Dixie, voting for rapists, making another hole that cracks around the equator into your heart. Future, do you grieve for us? Do you wonder when we will take care of each other? The rainless trees where I walk talking to myself and that was to the future uh from i don't know forthcoming book i guess uh and now do you want to read uh, the other one donovan 
Donovan. Yeah, so I don't know if that really comes across as a different form. Well, it's interesting. It was interesting for me to see because I, uh, in my book, which is 10 years old now, um, I had poems that I was sort of struggling to find the form with. And I ended up doing that same thing with the, you know, the spaces sort of like tabs. And I always thought of them as like trains because they were poems that I didn't want the punctuation to get in the way of like this sort of, I, I, I felt like each sort of, clause before the spaces was like a train car going by and i didn't want the sense of like stopping ever um and so it's interesting to hear you read that because you do it a little differently um with the same sort of format um anyway do you want to read donovan here yes but thanks about that because uh i like that idea about the train um and not i didn't want yeah not want you not wanting punctuation in the way and i found that i was mm -hmm. able to say more like build yeah more. it was the same yeah. you know extend the extend mm -hmm. the image yeah and it, yeah. Was, it was like the, I, I tried it first doing like short lines but short lines end up being like the length of the line is sort of a pace car i always feel like for a poem like it tells you how fast you should be reading so if you have short lines you end up pausing a lot more at the breaks and so i wanted um you know those those spaces but no without the pause like a really just a slight as long as your eye takes to move rather than um you know how punctuation or a line break would do so that's that's why i decided to do it in that form um i haven't written any poems like that in like 10 years though but that's my life i guess <laughs> poetry is so wonderful you can do whatever you want mm -hmm. like archie archie he archie hittable he did whatever he wanted that's what i loved donovan i walked down my neighborhood street called mountain although there is no mountain only rolling hills, although hills don't really roll. And as I look at a window display of shoes and pass by the candy store, a gasp happens in my head, a quake in my heart. They aren't here. My father who loved sweets, my mother who loved shoes, and the sun shines on a world of orphans. I quake along Mountain Street like a rolling gasp, although if someone asked how are you, I'd say fine like most of us are and aren't. I thought sadness was a prison, but it connects us. And if a chain, it should be one of tenderness. My father died two years ago, although sometimes I say a year, a way of keeping him closer. Can't do that anymore with my mother, need math on paper, the ache woven into each leaf, although there are birds and nests, we live in a tsunami waves of being and non-being but i'm no philosopher standing at the counter buying bunion pads feeling drowned and drying under fluorescent lights and warm by the smile of the clerk who blesses me with have a great day as i go out to mountainless mountain and remember donovan's song playing in my parents house in the 60s first there is a mountain then there is no mountain then there is I would have sang that, but I don't have, you know, <laughs> I have my guitar. Um, do you, let me ask, uh, does the book, uh, the, the poems you're writing now, like these poems seems to me like they would fit with just living. Um, do you have any sense of like books as sort of like discrete objects or do you just write poems um, and then compile whatever fits together? How, do, how, does, how does the creation of a book yeah. work for you? Um, yeah, we talked about that a little bit earlier. I really, I write poems. I just, I just write them. And I, you know, I want to write them. That's what I want to do. 
I, I remember your interview with Bob Hickok, and I thought it was just so wonderful when he said, I write a poem every day, and, um, and he's so prolific. I don't write a poem every day. I might be working on a poem, or, you know, some days I, you know, I don't write, mm -hmm. but for the most part, I write oh, okay. every Monday. <laughs> Monday mm -hmm. seems to be my day, uh, but then I'm working on something, or I'm working on the other poem that was last Monday, or, and then, uh, but I try, I've been trying to do a mm -hmm. poem a week uh, for a long time, and I feel like if I don't produce a poem a week, yeah. I'm very upset. And um, yeah, because I don't feel good. It's like it's it's something like when I've gone on vacation and and I haven't written anything. I'm I'm upset. You know, I I need to get back to writing something. It's a need. And um, so yeah, I write poems and then I try to figure out how they fit together. But in my next book, I'm kind of thinking about that. You know, thinking th I'm thinking about something about a, a sequence of series of something. But <laughs> I don't know what it is yet. Um, but I'm, I'm kind of waiting for it to come to me. Maybe I'm building the field, right? It's going to come. Yeah. Yeah. But no, I, it's hard to put them together. Like I said earlier, I needed help. I need, and then, you know, I had, uh, Maggie Smith, I had her help me, uh, in the beginning. Um, uh, she wrote the poem, uh, Good Bones, uh, that poem that went viral. And I just love her work. I love a lot of her work. And, um, so she helped me structure some of the book and then that didn't work. And then I got another, another, some other help, and then finally I had to settle. But no, it's it's difficult for me to put it's, it together. It's interesting a book. that you say yeah. uh, you write a poem every week, and and also that feeling of like lose, you know, not having accomplished something if you don't. Uh, you know, I used to have that feeling, and then I went enough weeks where I wrote nothing, where I didn't have that feeling anymore. So never do that. That's my advice to everybody watching. Because once you no, lose it, if you can't no, get it no, back, I'm trying to get it back right now by doing a prompt poem every week on these rattlecasts. Um, but, but so, so yes, please. Cause it's scary. <laughs> it's scary. That scares yeah, me. Yeah. And then I had a terrible experience where I went on a retreat with Alan Bass, uh, in Spain. Cause Alan wanted to go, Alan Fox, our founder of rattle wanted to go and invited me along cause he didn't want to go alone. And, um, I hadn't written much, like anything at all in like a year. And I wrote, um, you know, like five really good poems. Like they all worked. And so I was like, Oh, I, it doesn't matter. I can always come back on the horse. You know, it's like riding a bike. And that just, that thought in my head makes it so I just don't have the motivation that I used to. Um, but I, I wanted to ask yeah. though, if you write a, try to write a poem every Monday, as, as you said, uh, what do you do if you have like nothing, like, like what do you do to spark the poem? And if you have nothing that you like want to write about, um, what do you do? Oh, I read. I read. I read some, you know, I, I read people that, that make me want to write. You know, I, I know the people to read. I, I, or, or, yeah, and I, I, you know, I have a thousand books and are all around me. And yet, and yet, you know, it's so wonderful how you want mm -hmm. this new thing, right? Uh, so I'll go on the internet and I'll go to the Poetry Foundation or I'll go, um, like, I, like James Schuyler. All of a sudden, I was just so interested again in reading and I have his collected poems I have like three of his books but I went online and decided to read you know and I read some oh there was a beautiful uh, podcast on the New Yorker of Eileen Miles uh, talking with Paul M Muldoon about a poem by James Schuyler White Boat Blue Boat and then she read a poem of her own, and she talked about his poem, and then she read a I'm already writing. I mean, by the time I've listened about, 
five minutes of it, I'm, I want to write, <laughs> you know, so, so I have to put it on pause. And yeah, I got to read. I, I have, there's, there's no writing yeah, yeah. without well, reading. That's great, great no. advice. Uh, we're about yeah. out of time. Do you want to finish out with one last poem? Okay. Um, I will read, um, I guess I was going to read, I'll read the last poem okay. in the book. Um, okay. Um, it's called Mandolin Sky. Dark out when he leaves for work now, and we kiss and wish each other. I'm sorry, let me start again. Mandolin Sky. Dark out when he leaves for work now, and we kiss and wish each other a good day. And the door shuts, the lock clicks, the sound of his steps on the gravel fades. And I try to fall back asleep, pull the covers to my chin, and fold them perfectly. But the angels come to wrestle with me in a stream of shifting shapes. My father at the table lifting the spoon wrapped with noodles to his mouth after saying, I've taught you all I know. You're on your own. The lover from long ago who waited in the cold car until I came home from waitressing, smelling of chowder and beer. How that autumn there was no stopping our loneliness. Yet like rain jeweling the branches, it was part of the beauty. My friend, whose photograph looks at me from the bookshelf in my office, I can't throw it away, can't put it in a box in the basement with the mandolin without strings. Her head leans toward mine, strands of our hair mixing. She's wearing a feather necklace, a softness I can almost touch. I miss you, I miss you, I miss you, like a song's refrain. Who is the you? What is the missing? Sometimes I envy people who look past the shattering and believe the light in our eyes is God. Did I see it in the hospital in my father's eyes a few days before he died, as if he were on the other side walking three blocks west and over the dunes? We are on our own and never on our own, part of the one thing appearing in pieces. There is sadness like pure water washing through us. Soft light comes through the window from the gray field of sky, broken into clouds that are lit from within. And that was Mandolin Sky from Susan Brown's newest book, Just Living. Uh, thanks so much for joining us, Susan. That was really a pleasure. It's so great to get to get to you know explore a new book every week. I, I really love this. Uh, love meeting you. Thanks so much for being a guest. Thank you, Tim. This has just been a pleasure for me. Well, really yeah, fun. Yeah. I'll hope you yeah. back with your next book. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I have a great so. night. All right. Bye. Thank you, Jim. Well, that was Susan Brown um, with her uh, her latest book, Just Living. Well, you can find uh, Susan Brown's poems and, and uh, information about all three of her books at um, susanbrownpoems.com. That's uh, brown with an E. So susanbrownwithanepoems.com. So check that out. She has three books, like we mentioned, and Just Living is her most recent. She also has a poem in the current issue of Rattle, which is arriving for subscribers any day now. Um, now let's move on to the open mic uh, portion and the prompt portion of the show. Um, so, so what we're doing, if you're you know, haven't watched in a few weeks, we're going to do a prompt every week. And if you write a poem, you can send it over and I'll read it. Uh, and me, uh, Megan's, Megan's putting the prompts together. And um, she's going to write a poem. I'm going to write a poem. And that way we're actually writing poems, which we both of us haven't been. And uh, we really think, as I talk about on the show all the time, 
I really think poetry is good for the soul. And that's why I do poetry. Uh, that's why I care about Rattle. Uh, that's why I decided to do this job instead of working for Goldman Sachs or for a pharmaceutical company. And, uh, but, but then it turns out that I don't write poems unless I have some kind of deadline. So we're going to do a prompt every week. I'm going to write a poem. Megan's going to write a poem. And hopefully you'll write a poem too. Now, last week, um, the prompt was... Uh, this was last week's prompt, Megan's prompt. Uh, this was the Dinosaur Museum at 3 a.m. And it must be 40 lines long. Uh, the lines can be of any length. And we have, uh, I wrote a poem, Megan wrote a poem, and we have two poems to share from the audience. Um, if you write a poem for next week's prompt, you can uh, either submit through Submittable or you can um, uh, send an email with your poem and a reading if you'd like too. If It's really nice to be able to play readings. Uh, you can send that to uh, openmic at rattle.com is the email address. Now, here is, um, whose poem did I put first? Oh, this is my poem. I wrote this literally three hours ago. Um, but it was it was nice. Um, you know, last week our prompt was about a stuntman. And we happened just coincidentally to watch uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which was about, you know, Brad Pitt plays a stuntman. So it's sort of a, a nice uh, <laughs> way to go. And and this week the poem is a net... Uh, was that prompt and we just went to uh Megan and I and the kids went to San Antonio we went to the Wit Museum there uh as one of the many things we did with the, with the kids they're 5 and 9 so we were sort of um you know getting them to have that experience of flying and looking out the window at all the tiny cars like ants which they loved and then uh, we went to some caverns we went to some you know we ate a lot of fun Texas food and uh experienced all that but one of the things we did was go to the Wit Museum so we both have like a recent museum in our brains. And uh, this was my my poem for the museum at 3 a.m. And this is the Wit Museum too, but what can you do? Um, Natural History, 3 a.m. The only sound is the Coke machine's condenser kicking on, rolling in waves from the south wing restroom hallway over the waxed floor of the unlit atrium, under the hanging bones of the basilosaurus not rattling in the wind, this unsung harmony of pressurized air pulsing along the glass walls of the children's play area and the dino dig site, past the gift shop's shot glass, the purple plesiosaurs, the polished stones and fool's gold half buried in fake dirt and ready to find, but also spreading in every direction, rushing through a theropod splayed ribs and into the grinning maw of a giant alligator licking the leg of the brontosaurus, its bulging knee head high to a human, and upwards too, over the railing of the mezzanine and into the modern ecology display reverberating through the fur of each stuffed specimen on exhibit its carousel spotlight still cycling over the spotted ocelot, the Texas tortoise, the javelina, jackrabbit, green jay, ocelot, tortoise, rabbit, jay, until the invisible sensor in the belly of the beast senses what it needs and shuts off the machine. The coke is cool again, and there is no sound at all, not the tiny jackhammer of the air scribe's tungsten needle resting on a bent workbench, not sodium carbonate sandblasted from a microabrasion tool, not even the whir of the dust collectors, dusty fans sucking the finest grains of ancient dolomite through the box hood's yawning vents and into a large black garbage bag where, after all this time, layer by fragile layer, they have finally settled again. 
So that was my poem. I tried to, you know, it's 40 lines exactly, which worked out nicely. And, and the limit was 40 lines we're supposed to have at least, and it just happened to end up 40 lines, so I didn't have to pad it at all, which is nice. Now, as, as we always do on this show, uh, you know, Megan's poem is better than me because she's a better writer than me, but, but what can you do? Um, and here's Megan's poem, also called, well, this is the Dinosaur Museum at 3 a.m. And uh, here we go. This is the Dinosaur Museum at 3 a.m. I should be listening to him, the man on the video, telling us that the Celtopus lived 245 million years ago. And I am, I mean, my God, how does a brain even conceive of a number like that when January itself feels like an eternity? But I'm also thinking about how these museum videos are 10 minutes long and replay constantly. And does the employee posted at the door have to listen to this all day, every day? Does she struggle not to mouth the words? Does she pour her coffee every morning while mumbling the Lesothosaurus was the size of a chicken? Does she dream of femurs big as mountains? Does she fear being locked in here, forgotten in the bathroom, forced to wander these halls at 3 a.m.? Or would it be peaceful to sleep among the extinct? If you're dead long enough, do you cease to intimidate? It's not that I'm uninterested in the fact that I lived nearer in time to the T-Rex than the Stegosaurus did. It's that I've never seen a T-Rex, never felt the primal rush of terror that begins almost before one spots it so adept is the brain to the punctuality of fear, never been close enough to see it sweat. Do dinosaurs sweat? Board narrator doesn't say, but I can see beads of sweat on this employee's face. Maybe it's because it's warm. Maybe because the toddler next to me is spilling popcorn like a trail of artifacts. Maybe because she can't stand to hear the word Mesozoic again. 245 million years is the kind of thing a high school boyfriend promises two days before he breaks up with you over email. I don't trust anything that's been dead this long. I want to know why the narrator of this video sounds like he's never done a jello shot. I bet my life on it. I want to know what bones look like in the dark. Listening to anything repeatedly is torture, but when we sing the same song to a child for years, it's a lullaby. Maybe it's all about familiarity. Maybe it's all this time. Mesozoic is like the name of a lover. You could name dead dinosaurs like children, invite the narrator to the rowdiest bar you know and tell him to take a chance. Between you and me, baby, what's 250 million years? That was Megan's poem. Um, that was um, the Dinosaur Museum at 3 a.m. Um, sorry for reading it choppily. It's kind of hard to, to shuffle through the pages here. Um, now we have two more poems uh, from the prompt. And this one is Sean Hines. Uh, let me check out his bio really quick. Uh, Sean Hines was born in North Carolina and has lived most of his life in Virginia Beach, Virginia. He attended Old Dominion University in Norfolk, Virginia, studying under great artists such as Tim Siebels and Sherry Reynolds, and is currently assembling multiple collections of poetry and working on a novel. And here is uh, Sean Hines' poem. This was uh, After Hours. Trapped like a genie but without magical powers, five-year-old Marcus was abandoned after hours. The excitement of admiring the reconstruction of bones turned suddenly to dread, and all the fun was gone. The dinosaur museum at midnight morphed into a house of horror, and every passing moment devoured the young explorer. By, 
by one flickering lights cast shadows that grabbed fear consumed marcus open wounds that hadn't scabbed the two sounds intensified whistling winds whipped the old building creaked and groaned as fear tightened its grip 3 a.m brought blaring alarms masking panic shrills hidden laser tripwires activated the big reveal robotic dinosaurs began to roam and roar marcus's heart's rate spiked and his blood pressure soared Rap, rapid raptor running echoed through the walls sounding like the whole police force responding to the call tyrannosaurus snarls mixed with shrieks from birds of prey sent marcus further into a panic and he forgot how to pray his mind playing tricks on him he hoped it was all a dream shadows of spikes and horns added anxiety to fear and panic's team marcus would never know how the guard could be composed or understand why things were not as he supposed. The guard had slept off a mix of painkillers and red wine, trusting the new system would ensure that everything was fine. She watched the infrared scan, saw a figure huddled tight. She feared the potential terror of someone locked in overnight. Heads were going to roll when the media learned that it appeared a child spent the night and in turn their reputation would be ruined. Worried about future lawsuits, who didn't check and lock the child in didn't matter. It was moot. Once again, that was Sean Hines with his poem, After Hours. Always great to see rhyme. And Peter, thanks so much, Sean Hines, for sharing that. Um, I realize why I kept tripping up is because I keep meaning to scroll up and I have to slide the cursor down. Okay. Now we have one more poem uh, from the prompt this week, and this is Sleepover at the Natural History Museum by Jenny Middleton. She's a uh, poet from the UK, and she says here, I've set my poem in the Natural History Museum in London, which now hosts sleepover visits for school children, which sounds kind of fun. I, I bet my, uh, my daughter would love that. Uh, my poem mentions Mary Anning a 19th century paleontologist barred from becoming a member of the Geological Society because she was a woman. And uh, here's her poem. This is Sleepover at the Natural History Museum. Tonight the museum is pressed to fullness with shallow breathing and children rustling with sleep amongst mahogany-cased exhibits, their teddies and torches lying beneath the millennia of bones and mud set to stone. This cradled evidence of creatures is low-lit and polished, the forensics of death dissected, displayed, and dramatized. The cavities of rocks or relics held high in Gothic arch glory and muttering rhyme to twist the tongue with Latin names of the shells that Mary sold. And eyes closed, vowels of these strange names lap in the cochlear oceans, their tides bright with dreamed mumbles and the fall of a hundred breaths to deeper sleep. The layers thickening, compressing sediment to shale, and then the blue Leah's cliffs of lime sheer upwards again. Ichthyosauruses, Jesus, hard word to say, long-necked and swimming through landslides to Anning's hands, her long skirts wet with grimy sea and gritty sand stuck with gale-blown particles to stand before us, basket in hand, suspicion gnawing at her breast, the backs of silk-suited gentlemen 
hunched over her fossil finds, their faces dials calculating over wound and then slowed, brutally brief with her as the clock of eons is with our ten minutes of Cenozoic time. The morning is gray and wide with adventured children, the night written large in memories. Later, my daughter tells me Mary's, Anning's whole story, and we notice the flood tide that held the doors shut and against her is receding. I was going to was Jenny Middleton with Sleepover at the Natural History Museum. So that's four poems we had today um, from the prompt. Uh, thanks so much to Jenny and Sean for contributing those poems. And once again, if you'd like to do a uh, prompt for next week, just send it to openmike at rattle.com. I can't read every poem, but I can read as many as I have time for. And uh, if you include audio, you're sort of a shoe in So if you send an MP3, please go ahead and do that. You can also submit through Submittable. Now, uh, next week's prompt, again, this is Megan's prompt. This is an undiscovered constellation and must be no longer than 280 characters, i.e. Twitter length. So um, we had a 40 um, minimum of 40 lines is the requirement this week. So next week we give you a little break and you have to do a micro poem that would fit on Twitter. And uh, once again, the, th the, the prompt is an undiscovered constellation. And uh, you only have 280 characters, so try to squeeze it in. Um, well, that, I guess, is the show for tonight. Uh, thanks, everybody, for joining us. Um, as always, I'd like to say, please do um, click the share and like button and um, the bell for notifications so that you make sure you catch these shows live, which my goal is to have 100 people watching live. I was talking to Susan Brown about this before. We have about 25 people watching live every episode, and I'd like to get that up to about 100 and have just different people doing the open mic every uh, after the guest every week. That's my goal. Uh, you know, we've been doing this for six months now, and hopefully we'll, we'll reach that goal at some point. But um, I appreciate everybody who's here watching. I should say, as always, Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We are unaffiliated with any other organization and do it just because we love poetry and think it's really important for um, society and, um, and humanity. I think poetry really matters, and uh, that's why we do this. Now, next week, uh, next week, Kelly Grace Thomas is going to be our poet um, for the feature for the first hour. Uh, Kelly Grace Thomas is the author of this new book, Boat Burned. Uh, she's also a winner of some year's Neil Postman Award for Metaphor. And we published her, I think that was issue, what issue was that? Uh, maybe 61, I can't remember. I should have wrote that down. But Kelly Grace Thomas is just a really wonderful poet, rich with metaphor. She was also a winner of our, I think, third, maybe second, Wrightwood Poetry Slam. And then she came back next year and taught uh, poetry workshop at the Wrightwood Poetry Festival. Um, she's just a wonderful poet, wonderful person, and I'm really looking forward to reading this book and sharing it with everybody. Uh, that's it for tonight. I hope you have a great week, and I will see you Tuesday, February 25th uh, with Kelly Grace Thomas. Good night.